Welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kemp, host and creator of the podcast. I welcome you to my final season of the show with the theme titled Finishing the Crumbs, as I am officially wrapping up this year for good. I hope you enjoy the episodes for the season. Happy listening, everybody. Hi everyone, so this is Randy from the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. So today I am joined with a dear friend of mine, Tola, Tola Livesey. So Tola is a 1.5 generation Cambodian American who currently lives in the LA by way of Chicago. She completed her undergrad in anthropology at UIC and her master's in library and information science from the uh, University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. She currently works as a librarian and archivist concentrating on preserving and archiving Cambodian American histories and stories. Tola has been a former board member and community organizer at the National Cambodian Museum and Killing Fields Memorial in Chicago, and was the lead project coordinator for several community programming. Her passion for cultural preservation is the driving force for one day creating a Cambodian American digital archive that will provide a platform for Cambodians to preserve and share their stories. So. Welcome, Tala. I know we've known each other going back to our days with the museum. I'm still on the board, but we met seven, eight years ago, I believe. And yeah, wow. Yeah, it's it's hard um, to believe it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really hard to believe that we've known each other for several years now, and we've had many great conversations. and And the reason why I wanted to bring you on is because you share so much about your experiences being not only Cambodian American in America, but like the work that you're doing now to see you going into archiving and to go into the storytelling world uh, in our community and to bring it to our communities is very, very important. And it's something that I am very passionate about. So first of all, how are you doing today? I am doing good. Um, It's just been so hot and you're just finding ways to keep cool. I bet. I mean, it's been quite a hot summer uh, so far. I, I can only imagine. And, you know, as we start out this uh, episode, I wanted to ask you, what was your experience growing up being Khmer American? Uh, like, where were you born? Where did you move and settle to? Yeah, so... um, My mom says I was born in 1981. But according to any of the documents that I have, it all says 1980. So I could be 42. I could be 43. Who knows? <laughs> when I was younger, I would pick the older age. And then when I now that I'm older, I always pick the younger age. But um, I was born in refugee camp in Chonburi, Thailand. And we came um here to the US in 1982 and um short stint out on the west coast we came through San Francisco went to Washington DC and then the final settling place was in Chicago actually so um my first memories ever is Chicago Lake Michigan snow going sledding in Lincoln Park um, we lived right like a couple of blocks away from Truman College, which is uh, a, a Chicago City College, um, right there in Uptown. 
you know, near uh, what they call little Vietnam or yeah. uh, or Asia. So that neighborhood, um, we roamed those streets when I was little. <laughs> so there was the Cambodian communities, there was um, Lao, which was much smaller, um, but Vietnamese. So those were the two big communities that were all in that area during then. And I just remember um, there were several apartment buildings that were predominantly um, where the city of Chicago and the refugee um, coordinators like put us into. So um, my first memories are being part of these Cambodian communities and feeling like that's all I've known, right? Up until that point. And so it was from a three, four, five-year-old point of view, um, it, it felt very uh, cohesive. There's definitely a sense of, you know, people getting together and connecting. And, um, you know, for me at the time, I didn't know we were refugees. I just knew I was part of a very vibrant community. Um, my mother, uh, she was a single mother at the time. And so it was just me and her. And um, I just remember having a lot of like, aunties, a lot of Mings, um, helping to take care of me while my mom was working and vice versa. Um, like everybody just took turns watching everybody's kids. And, um, my mother remarried. She actually remarried, uh, with an American. He was the building manager for our building. And I guess he had to ask, you know, the community leaders if he had permission to date her. Um, that's what I have been told mm. about that story. But I do remember being at my mom's wedding and like, you know, they did complete traditional Cambodian wedding. It was like three days worth of celebrations. Um, back then there was a Cambodian restaurant. It was like right near the train tracks or right underneath it. I remember that. Um, do you remember that music store, the Cambodian music store under the train tracks as well? Because it was also under, the, under there. Um vaguely there okay. was like little shops and stuff but i just remember the huge restaurant we have photos of it still oh wow um, it was like one of the few there was like this huge wall mural of Angkor wat wow and um you know it was the few place that was that was like the party center banquet hall restaurant all of that that was like the community hub center and of course, the Watt, the house um, that was on, uh, I can't think of the street name now. Yeah, they moved recently too. Yeah, I heard. Um, well, back then that was the only Watt, yeah. right? So you, everybody congregated there. And I do remember one of my first memories of being that Watt was sitting in the basement. And I don't know if you remember those chalkboards and you would practice writing your Khmer letters. I know, I didn't and, go you know, to one that. Of the monks yeah. or one of the ladies like, I guess back then I was a very like independent child because I was like, A, I had a single mom at the time and B, I was just like let loose. Like all the kids were just like little gangs of kids hanging out everywhere and we would just terrorize the neighborhood um, up there. But I remember I got hit in the hand with a ruler because I didn't write my Khmer letter the right way. It's just like one of these like random memories, but yeah. Um, it was definitely interesting times. Um, but my stepfather, 
who's originally from Glen Ellen, Illinois, he had his immediate family moved to North Carolina, I guess years before. And one year we went down to visit, um, right not long after my sister was born. She was born in 1987. And we ended up moving to North Carolina in 1989, I remember. Mm-hmm. So I was just about to start second grade, I think. And I started second grade in North Carolina. Wow. And yeah. you know, that, that's about, a big like, shift. A shock from like being in Chicago to a very rural. And it wasn't like a city. It was like a tiny, tiny, small town. I think at the time there was like maybe 6,000 people in this like county, county seat of Burgaw. That's where I moved mm. to North Carolina. <laughs> that must have been a huge shift to go from being surrounded by community members that you remembered uh, growing yeah. up with. And then all of a sudden going into presumably a very white community. And yes. And oh, I yeah. think, and I, and I think a lot of us, especially our generation have had experiences with assimilation one way or another, it's hard to avoid it, but what was the effect of assimilation that, what effect did assimilation have on you uh, once you moved to North Carolina, once you had to deal with being in a predominantly white community? Yeah, it was quite an adjustment. Um, Cause so I was six at the time when we moved um, or I was turning six um, when we moved down there. So by that time, um, you're a little bit more aware. So in Chicago, you know, I was predominantly surrounded because of how young I was, um, especially living in uptown area by other Cambodians. So we were definitely very much in our own little bubble. And, you know, even though we were aware of like, different people or other things we were like within our own little bubble within the city right um my mom had community she had people she talked to um I still could understand um I was just learning to speak I think I was a little bit slower at speaking though but um especially it was harder for me to learn English while I was in Chicago I remember that. Um, and then when I came to North Carolina, I had to like, it It had to be, I didn't have a choice, you know? I wasn't any um, protected in this little bubble anymore. Um, even though I was like going to kindergarten and like that, it was still, it was harder for me to adjust. Um, so when we did live in that community for a little bit, and then we moved further out west towards like um, Ravenswood area, actually even further than that. And so even though we were still in the city, we were no longer within that Cambodian bubble. And so I had to kind of like speak English more and learn a little bit more of the language, um, which I think did help me to assimilate a little bit better when we moved to North Carolina, for sure. Um but it's so different, like Southern culture, um, 
the Southern way of living. Um, also, like it is known as the Bible Belt for a reason. And so I was kind of like thrust into the middle of that. Mm. Yeah. Um, having, I think it was a lot harder for my mom, for sure. Um, she was still learning English. And for her, even though she was forced to assimilate faster, I think it was really hard for her emotionally because she no longer had that any Cambodian um, connection. She didn't have anyone to speak her language with or to talk about her experiences, especially having survived the Khmer Rouge. Um, and it's not like there was like therapist or anyone that she could see. Mm -hmm. One and two, none of them would have understood her anyway, um, especially, you know, things get lost in translation. So I think it was definitely harder for her. Um, in some ways, it forced her to assimilate in certain ways, like with language, but then in other ways, it kind of, um, I think, stunted her mental health mm. and emotional health. Um, and of course, we don't see it until years later. Yeah, no, I think it's it's very real that when we don't, it's it puts a lot of burden on us to figure out the mental health aspect of our parents too, mm -hmm. uh, especially much later on because we are the recipient of a lot of their trauma in many yes. ways. Um, I was also going to ask you, so with assimilation, how did it affect? how you saw yourself as Cambodian American. I know you probably weren't thinking about it as a 10 year old for sure, but as an adult oh now looking at it. So I knew I was different when we moved down there from the get-go because it was either black, white, or they had a few, um, there was like a few Latinos but most of them were like migrant workers because we were where we lived. It was mainly like 95% farmland. So you had tobacco fields, corn fields, soybean fields. Um, there's a few pig farms, turkey farms, but it's like, it's pretty much farmland. Um, so everyone spread out, isolated. Um, it's not like you can just like walk somewhere and have everything available like in the city right so I definitely knew me and my mother stuck out like a sore thumb especially when everybody around you're like oh what kind of oriental are you mm. like legit those are the questions that we would get um and I was like orientals isn't that like a rug like even at like that young age I knew that um, but it's such a like old school way of thinking, especially for back then, um, certainly like a age group of people who were like thought Asia was all Oriental. That was like the overarching word, right? Term for everybody from that continent. Um, so I think we just, we heard it so much that now to this day, my mom sometimes consider her health, herself as, you know, we're Orientals. And I'm just like, no, but that's just how much we heard it all the time. Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody knew our family because we were the only ones that 
weren't black, white, or from Mexico. Wow, and thank you for sharing your experiences. And did you ever hear stories about Cambodia or about the Khmer Rouge from your mom growing up? Or what not stories did really. you hear from them? Mm -hmm. mm -mm. Yeah, not until I got to be like a young adult. Um, and to be honest, you know, she had very few friends. Eventually she did meet some other, um, like she made some other Cambodian and Thai friends who were wives of military men that were based in Camp Lejeune, which mm -hmm. is in Jacksonville. So Jacksonville, North Carolina, there's like huge U.S. Marine base there. And we would drive up there. It's like maybe about 45 minutes from where we live at the time. And so we would drive up there for like good Asian food um, good Thai food, Chinese food. There's a little bit more variety there because it was a military-based city. And so there's definitely more people for my mom to connect with. And so she was able to make friends up there. Um, and it wasn't until around that time, maybe in my teens, she would mention a few things or I would ask her questions, um, especially when you know, we were learning about the Vietnam War in school. Mm -hmm. I remember specifically in our social studies book, we were learning about, you know, the 60s, the Vietnam War, and there was one paragraph about, Cam you know, what happened in Cambodia and the bombing and the Khmer Rouge. It was like reduced to one paragraph. Mm. And I was like, I'm Cambodian. My mom experienced this, you know, like there are like tangibles between the Vietnam War and what happened in Cambodia. And obviously now we know more about what happened and, you know, what led to the Khmer Rouge taking over and the power vacuums and all that happened um, and the U.S. involvement in that, right? Um, but until that point, I didn't feel, I'd always felt disconnected and like the other, never felt like I quite belonged. And I remember when we first moved down there, I will say, I remember this little, like, um, a classmate asked me where Cambodia was. Cause she was like, Oh, what are you? You know, like, are you Chinese? You don't look Chinese. Um, are you from like Japan or India? I was like, no, I'm Cambodian. And they were like, where is that? Like, what is that? Is that in Africa? Like legit Africa was thrown out as a place where Cambodia could be. And I was like, no, it's in Southeast Asia. And it's just like, even, you know, being in first grade or second grade, and having to, my only identity at the time was like this place on a map in Southeast Asia because it was just me and my mom. And it's like, there's no one else who understands who or what we are or in our identity. And so up to that point, my only identity was like a picture of Cambodia on a map. Yeah. Um, Oh, go ahead. And so, so that's just followed me throughout pretty much school, 
you know, and of course at that age, you're just trying to fit in, you're trying to belong. So you fit, you know, try to find your place within the little subcultures of elementary, middle and high school, you know? I was also going to ask you because when you had to experience these microaggressions and also this curiosity, this endless curiosity from your mm -hmm. peers uh, of, of your age, did it make you want to learn more about Cambodia or did you feel ashamed in, in a sense? I didn't ever feel ashamed. I think a part of me did, but I didn't know where to look. I didn't know how to find that information. And I knew that it was going to be hard to talk to my mom. I, I knew that inherently from either listening to her talking about herself with her friends, you know, like you just overhear conversations and seeing how upset she got. I knew like some, some things happened. Um, and I really didn't start pursuing like learning more about, you know, that Cambodian identity and culture and the Khmer Rouge and all that until I was like, I think until college. It's very similar to how I grew up in a sense because I learned about Cambodia through my dad, do very bits and pieces, not a whole lot. But it wasn't until I went to college myself and there was a mm -hmm. Southeast Asia symposium that they were having. And that's how I became very curious about my background. And and there was so much that I did not know. Even And as I was tapping into it, it felt like this. It felt like this overwhelming energy because there's so much to process when you're talking mm -hmm. about Cambodia, but also specifically those four years that a lot of Cambodians had to go through during Khmer Rouge and the aftermath of the of of the trauma. So I know, like hearing these stories, it had to have some impact. It had to have a huge impact on you as an adult. I, I feel like you end up going backwards, figuring out your mom's relate your your relationship with your mom. But were you able to kind of start piecing together uh, what about why your mom might have acted this way or the way she acted towards you? I mean, were you able to kind of piece together once you started learning about the history? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's always in hindsight, right? And I think my mom and I have, have always had a contentious relationship you know we've always had butted and I think it's just a two females who have grown up very different culturally um you know I definitely have been very Americanized and for her being isolated away from you know other Cambodian people she didn't have any support um because a she's been in survival mode all all of our parents were like in that survival mode right so there wasn't like a lot of you know we were forced to be latchkey kids and kind of raise ourselves independently and so and the fact that you know how they always counted on us to you know read forms and like 
you know, do all these adult things that we weren't prepared, you know, understood or what we were reading. And yet they were expecting us to understand that, like, you know, a lease or legal documents or all these other things and school records and doctor's records. And, you know, we were supposed to, you know, we're supposed to interpret that into a way that they could understand and, you know, fill these things out. And, you know, that taught us to be very independent and to have to like, it taught us like certain skills that we normally wouldn't learn until you're like almost adults or like in high school, but we were learning these at like six, seven, eight years old, right? Like learning research skills and all these things, even though we had no resources. Um, but, you know, you hear those little bits and pieces of stories of my mom and what she says, and um, they come in like sporadic moments, you know, like something triggers the memory. You say something, you do something, it reminds them of something else. And then, you know, sometimes she'll talk about it. Sometimes she'll say a few words and then she'll get upset and shut down. Um, and then I would hear things from what my stepfather would say too. So, you know, I have his, some of his secondhand accounts of what she has told him. Um, and I just remember there was a time even in college, um, you know, we hardly ever talked to like on that personal level. We didn't have one of those. She was like my best friend. I could tell her everything. We didn't have one of those relationships. And so talking anything personal or being comfortable enough to ask those types of questions is, was really difficult. Even now, like, I feel bad asking her anything because I know that, you know, there's still painful memories for her. She's mm -hmm. never found her own closure for it. Right. So it's mm -hmm. not even like in like this academic sense, I, I want to know more, but you can't take that emotions out of it. Even though I want to, I can't, um, for her or for me. So, um, you know, so it just depends on how she's feeling too, but there's still so much that I don't know. Yeah, it's very real because oftentimes, oftentimes, and I've heard this from folks too in the community, uh, like from our own peers, that that sometimes the stories that you get comes from in the midst of a trauma reaction or trauma response. Mm -hmm. So they could have something that could be re-triggering them or you can have an argument with them and all of a sudden they'll start telling a certain story. And and that's how you end, and that's how I end up learning about some of my dad's stories. It's when he was always angry at me, you know? And mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it wasn't the best, it's never been the best method. <laughs> I, I can assure you that it's never yeah. been the best. And at the time method. you're not like emotionally ready to receive those stories either. So like, Yes. Those experiences of learning and trying to figure things out is like based on trauma itself, right? You're like, it's during this moment of tension and and frustration and anger. And it's like, at that point, you don't even want to hear it because there's like so many other things that are going into this story. And it's just like, yeah, it's hard. 
it sure is. Yeah, it, it sure is. And recently, you've uh, also taken uh, the initiative to start doing interviews of other Cambodian Americans, specifically with 1.5 generation. 1.5 generation, for those who aren't aware, uh, for for many Cambodian Americans under that generation, those who were born in the refugee camps and came to the U.S. at a young age or mm-hmm. had been born in Cambodia and moved at a very early age. So what brought you to the world of archiving and storytelling? What was bringing you to that work? Yeah. So um, you know, growing up in the South, being like part of few Asians, let alone Cambodians, um, and then going off to college. So my first college experience um, was in North Carolina. I went to a party school you know, I thought I was going to be a graphic designer, photographer, working in the arts. Sorry. Um, at the time, that's what I wanted to do, right? Um, this was in 1999. <laughs> Just dated myself. My freshman year at East Carolina University was in 1999. And I just remember that first year was a blur of drunkenness. <laughs> Because I had been home, um, there had been a lot of family drama for most of my high school years, um, and I was just ready to get out of that small, tiny town, right? And as soon as I did, I got the taste of freedom and independence and AOL, you know, we were connected with AOL chat. I know nothing about AOL. Wink, wink. Liar. Um, I saw you winking. Um, It was just a whole new world, right? And that's actually when I started um, trying to connect with other Cambodians. Because up until that point, I didn't have any Cambodian friends. Um. There were times when we would visit up north to like Philadelphia or New York, and my mom had some acquaintances and friends that she would keep, but we didn't see them a lot. And um, I think one time I stayed up in New York for the summer, um, but it's all a blur and we didn't keep in contact. So, you know, in college, I started trying to, you know, blogs were coming in and like people would build their own websites. And that's when I think it was like 2000, 2001, um, I heard about my life. Uh, do, you, do you remember that? I do. I do recall vaguely because I wasn't on, I wasn't in the community, but my cousin was a fan of using my life. Yeah, I think I think that's what it was called back then. I can't remember, but it was like one of the few places. And it's not like I, you know, I just stalked the page. I didn't like participate or anything. I would just see what other people posted and maybe figure out like where they were. But um, I really didn't have any Cambodian friends until I moved back up to Chicago. And it was hard trying to connect with other Cambodians or even learning about Cambodian history 
Um, A, I didn't know where to search. Um, most of the libraries in my community where I went were had not nothing, if anything. Or if they did mention anything about Cambodia, it was in in the relation in context of the Vietnam War, right? Um, you know, for for me, my identity was my mom is a Khmer Rouge survivor. You know, we're refugees. That's my identity. I'm I'm a refugee. Um, culturally, I didn't have anything as far as like a Cambodian like connection. It's not like we went to temples or I just felt very like very culturally floating is how I felt at the time. Um, I went through a few years of depression. I didn't go to college. I dropped out for a little bit. And I think I was living in South Carolina in Charleston. Um, and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing with my life. I was like 25, 26 at the time. And I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing in the South? What am I doing still here? I just didn't feel like there was a future for me. And that's when I was like, I need to somehow move back to Chicago because at least in a bigger city, I felt that I, ha I would have more opportunities, right? And Chicago was the one city where I already felt like I knew. Um, it, it was already familiar to me. And let me just tell you this crazy story. I met someone who was touring in a band from Chicago and they played at a house show in Greenville, North Carolina at the time. And he was a drummer of this band called Killer Whales. <laughs> it's gonna be in the archives for this one. And that put it in my head that I can move back to Chicago somehow, some way. And a year later, I don't know how it happened, but it did, we reconnected and I moved to Chicago to be with him. And we started living together. But to go back into archives, I wanted to finish school. So I had dropped out and I was living in Ravenswood and coming back to Chicago, it, there's a moments of deja vu because I haven't been in like almost, see, I left when I was, right when I was about six and moved there almost exactly 20 years later. Mm. So I was 27 when I moved to Chicago as an adult. Um, been gone for 20 years, moved up to Ravenswood area, went back to the uptown area as an adult and it fucking felt like deja vu. Like, I mean, in, in a way it was because I remember these streets. I remember Truman College. You know, I remembered um, spending New Year's there as a little girl, just walking there from our apartment. Because I don't know if you ever went to Truman College for my New Year. I have not, but I've been to Truman College. Okay. So during my New Year, they would have a big celebration out there. I've been with Leck a few times, but um, that started getting me. So I got went back to school. I took an anthropology class and I fell in love. And it was that class and that particular teacher 
that kind of spurred me into finding out more about my cultural identity and heritage. And that kind of just snowballed. So finished my, built up my GPA at Truman, transferred to University of Chicago or of Illinois at UIC and got my undergrad in anthropology, like did a complete 180 in what I wanted to do. And I was like, it's just something clicked for me. It was like finding, I felt like my mission was like, once I started learning more about the Khmer Rouge and all that happened and how much we lost culturally, um, like a seed of like passion and desire started forming during that time at Truman and at UIC to pursue um, something in cultural preservation, particularly for Cambodian culture. Mm -hmm. And um, it got me connected with the Cambodian Association of Illinois. It got me, um, my first internship was there with the museum. This was in 2011, I believe, 2012. Yeah. Wow, that's and incredible. That's, you know, I met Karu and at the same time, I was also using services at, at CAI because I didn't have a passport. And even though I was a citizen, I didn't have any paperwork. So I was trying to become a citizen and doing all that paperwork and going down to the U.S. Um, immigration office based in Chicago. And like, it took me from 2012 to, I think I finally got my passport in 2017. Wow. Congratulations on going through this journey. <laughs> it, it was a journey, a my friend. A journey. It was a journey. Yes. Um, but like from that experience with that first anthropology class, it was like an explorer class, right? And it just kind of snowballed literally into me working in museums and being more involved in the community and um, meeting with my peers. Like Lek was literally the first Cambodian friend I had my entire life. Same here, yeah. Share that in common. Shout out to Luck too. She was also on my podcast. Yeah. She was on my first season of my podcast. If you want to check that out. Um, but yeah, she was such a great connector for that. And I couldn't be any more grateful. Yeah. Could not be any more grateful for her presence. And you know, one of the things that I've talked about on my show ad nauseum, and I want to get your I think it's more important to get your perspective on this, but we're reaching the 50 year mark in less than two mm. years of the beginning of the Khmer Rouge. And there's a lot to be said there, but why do you feel it is necessary now to interview Cambodians about the Killing Foods era? Yeah, well, it, like you said, it's coming up in 50 years. And for a lot of people who survived that, um, you know, a lot of them are coming towards the end of their lives, right? They're that age, they're like, in their 70s, 80s, um, and they've survived so much where I can understand they don't want to go back into the past, okay? Which is completely understandable. Um, you know, they don't have the 
they didn't have the resources that we have now to the extent that we have now back then. Um, and it was just a lot of like learning by, tri by trial and error, right? Um, so the project that I worked with uh, is the Pacific Asian Counseling Services based in Long Beach. And they were able to get funding to interview 15 1.5 generation Cambodian Americans. So this particular age group that they were looking for were ones that were born, I think, believe around 19, starting around 1960. And because by the time the Khmer Rouge happened, um, you know, some of them were like in their early teens to like little kids, like around three, four, five, six. Um, so a lot of them definitely had more memories of the Khmer Rouge. Um, you know, some of them blocked it out, especially like more traumatic moments. Um, but, you know, this particular group, they were able to share more. And I think having come to the U.S. at such a young age, um, where they were still able to be adaptable and, you know, it was a little bit easier for them to assimilate because, you know, they were still able to learn so much more. Um, I think they were more so in terms of like being able to talk and share about their experiences versus like their parents' generation, you know, that experienced a lot of that as adults and who, you know, had families, um, or, and were just has been living in survival mode for the past, like 40 years, 45 years since then. Right. Um, it was an amazing project. I don't, I have personally have never been involved in a project, oral history project like this. I know there have been others. Um, for example, the Cambodian Museum in Chicago did an oral history project years ago. I think this was like maybe um, early 2000s, I believe, because I've seen the transcripts. But they're sitting in the basement in a metal file folder box, you know, cabinet, just sitting there. Um, big pet peeve of mine as an archivist, <laughs> but well, that's another story. Um, I think what's unique about this particular project that I was able to be a part of is that it was all filmed. And so not only do we have um, audio, but we have, you know, a physical recording of interviews. So, and which is, you know, it's like a one-on-one -on -one type of interview, which makes it so much more visually and emotionally profound that you can see them, you know, see their emotions and, you know, see them sharing their stories. I think it's definitely brings it to another level. And um, yeah, there was three oral historians and between us three, we interviewed 15 people. Mm. And I, one of the things that that was a very common thread in the people that I interviewed was that they were like, why me? You know, why should I share my story? You know, it's, um, 
you know, that was one part of the idea. And then the other part was like, you know, even though I don't feel like I'm any different from everyone else, I still felt, or they felt the need that it was important they share their story. So that was, I mean, obviously the main thing that kind of motivated them to sign up to participate in this project. Um, but yeah, I also had others that were just like, even though they signed up, they still weren't sure if they were going to go through with it um, because they didn't feel like their story was important enough, you know? So I had to convince them that yes, it is important. Um, you know, you all may have had this shared experience, but individually they're all very different. You know, some people, you know, some people were in Phnom Penh, others were outside of Phnom Penh. Some people were in Batambangs, you know, it was like what their unique experiences were, were so different from everybody else's. Um, and all of those things gave them the experiences to the person that they are now, you know, and they're, you know, they're successful. They're like pursuing um, their dreams and, or some of them are already early retired. And it's just like, it's, it was really, um, even though it was emotional, it was really uplifting too, at the same time. Did they find cathars catharticism in sharing their stories with you, especially when you're holding that space? Uh, I, I wonder how Oh gosh, yes. that must have been, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, but a lot of them, they had to find that before the interview too. I think for them to be in that space emotionally and mentally to share it in such a public way. Because even though, you know, this is going to be, it's not like, it's not, so you have to sign up to listen to the full interviews, um, but anybody can access it. I think for them to understand in their head that this is going to be on record there's always going to be something, you know, their story is going to be out there, available, accessible. Um, and so, you know, we let them know all of that, of course, before the interview. So they all had to mentally and emotionally prepare themselves for when they were sitting down, you know, like, like what we're doing right now. Um, but in a much personal emotional capacity um, and setting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of them, they've shared these stories before with like close friends, um, but just like I said, preparing them to, for it to be in such a public way is a little bit different too. Where can people learn more about archiving or opportunities to record stories? What does it look? What does the landscape of recording stories within the Cambodian community look like now? Did you see my face right then? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't look too optimistic there. Yeah, it, there's. So right now, other than like small projects like this, um, in certain niche communities, uh, especially in like academic communities. Um, I don't know 
if there's anything that is, there's nothing on a national level that's like reaching out and saying, you know, we want your stories, we want to preserve it. There's nothing like the Shoah Foundation. So the Shoah Foundation is a platform, um, archival space that was started by Steven Spielberg um, for Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. And they have filmed over thousands of hours of interviews um, of Holocaust survivors, especially, you know, because many of them were passing away. Um, and so they wanted to get these stories recorded as much as possible. So there's nothing like that um, for Cambodian Americans. And I think that's part of the reason why um, PACS, the Pacific Asian Counseling Services, were able to get funding because uh, not only were they able to, they were able to tie it mainly because, you know, to the mental health and wellness um, because they're a mental health center, but also knowing the need that it is coming on 50 years, right, of the Khmer Rouge and that there is a lack of a platform to try to collect these stories. Right now, you know, we have the stories that we recorded for this project, and that's going to be archived and held um, with the Cambodian um, Cambodian American History and Archives Project that's um, based in Long Beach. It's part of the um, Long Beach Historical Society. Um, so people can go to the website. I think I've sent you the link if you want to share it in the future. Um, but yeah, other than like what's separate, what's different about that is like a community archive where it's from the people for the people. Um, I think it's a little bit harder when it comes to academic archives, like archives that are based with like schools and universities, it can be a little harder to access. And it can be harder for the average person to try to like find and discover, um, especially if you don't like are not a teacher or professor or a researcher. And I think hitting those roadblocks, you know, going through my academic career and learning, um, that has kind of what led me to start trying to find a way how we can build a platform that's like by the Cambodian community for the Cambodian community where, you know, we as a community build a platform together to share and collect our stories, hmm. to um, make it available for the people within our community who want to learn more, you know, for those who, like us, when we were younger, we didn't have those resources. Um, and just thinking about the next generation and, you know, if they do want to like research and learn about, you know, the Cambodian Americans that came here in the eighties and nineties, like, and they're doing all great things now, like, where do we go for that? Indeed. And also I think we are at this critical time right now to 
hear these stories and Gosh, and yes. it also and also really for us it's also just starting the conversation how do we hold spaces for our survivors um when and how do we receive them and that is going to be the first big key here also there's opportunities to record your stories it could be on a podcast it could be uh on a blog i mean there's many amp opportunities where just even getting the conversation started is how we how we tell our narratives and not let that narrative be slipping away from us uh this is a topic and i'm so glad I'm, i brought you on for this conversation because this is a topic that really does worry me uh, a mm -hmm. great deal uh especially with our adult survivors uh fading into old age and death and what does those stories look like for us in the future uh how uh can younger folks access them and i'm curious about your two kids and they're both mixed uh cambodian and white and have you made them aware about their culture and history and what do you hope to tell them yeah um i have um they are they're five and seven so it's a difficult age but also it's a very impressionable age and I try to expose them as much as I can I think it's just been harder recently between with the pandemic um and once again even though I live in the LA area, you know, Long Beach is like the largest, has the largest population of Cambodians, Cambodian Americans. It's still a trek to get out there from where I'm at because I'm oh, like yeah. on, the other side of, on the east side of LA. So, um, but I definitely tried to expose them as much as I can. Um, you know, we have photos of when we went to Cambodia, my son at the time, he's my oldest, he was a year and a half, so he doesn't remember too much. But we definitely go through photos on my phone, we have photos on my wall, and we always talk about it, you know, we'll like, oh, um, you know, because they always like looking at my phone and all the different photos, especially my daughter. And she was like, I went to Cambodia too, right? And I was like, yeah, you were in my belly. Um, and I would show her photos and of course, Lennon would see his photos. And so they know they're Cambodian and my five-year-old is wanting to learn Cambodian words. And of course, every time they talk to their Ye, you know, um, she's in Cambodia right now, my mom. Um, but every time we video chat, you know, I always have the kids on there and they talk to her and she would show them videos of where she's at. Um, and then, you know, New Year's, we try to go to the temples. And I also think that it helps that a lot of the friends that I have are also Cambodian. So we have that shared experience of having children near the same age. And we try to like hang out, get them to hang out and, um, it's small doses, but they're there. And um, it's just different because again, we're not surrounded by it, which makes a, 
I think it would be a lot easier for them to learn more if we were closer to Long Beach. Um, but they're aware. They are, they know, you know, they're always asking questions about the difference between Cambodian and Chinese or Cambodian and Japanese wow. and things like that. Yeah. Because at their school, there's a lot of Chinese and they hear their friends speak in Mandarin or, um, yeah, our elementary school is like 85% Chinese <laughs> or Taiwan, same difference almost. <laughs> yeah. So they, you know, they're always like, well, this friend is Chinese, but I'm Cambodian. So it's really cute. But then they're like, but dad's not Cambodian. And I was like, no, he's not Cambodian. <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. That is such a yeah. cool story. And, and also it's because I like to see people in our age group be able to tell these stories to their kids, even if they don't have the full version of it. I think we also have to, to destigmatize that too, because I think we struggle with being enough for so much of our lives. And, mm. and when I don't have kids, but, but when we tell younger folks, uh, it is important to tell our own full versions of ourselves and to not walk away from the past in, in a sense, but to acknowledge that, yeah, I'm For sure still learning just as you are. And I think there's something yeah. that's so beautiful with that. So with that said, what does being Cambodian mean to you now? Oh, wow. Dang, Randy. <laughs> I'm all about the deep dives here. So. Deep dives. Um, well, I will say I've always, I've never been ashamed. I think not of my, not of who I am, not of my cultural identity, not of my heritage. Um, you know, I saw my mom's a survivor. And as I gotten older, I've definitely felt like I've survived, you know, obviously different things that have been traumatic. Um, but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Mm -hmm. And the more I've learned and the more that I've have talked to peers who are also Cameroon Americans that are my age, um, especially women, it makes me even more proud than I was before, right? Um, I, you know, it's frustrating actually that as a subgroup of Americans, of Cambodian Americans, um, and especially of, of our parents, that for many Americans um, who are not Asian, or and even like other Asian Americans, like we will kind of always be the underdog and like the refugees, right? We'll, we'll always be like the Khmer Rouge survivors, the Khmer Rouge refugees. Um, 
And that can have such kind of a, this weird stigma, right? And I never allowed it to like bother me. I think for some people it has bothered them. Um, but I've also seen a lot of people who have become very successful um, in spite of that, that kind of stigma that comes with being a Khmer Rouge refugee. Obviously we're more than that. Um, and I'm really proud of us as a group, um, especially those who are my age, like in their 50s and 40s, um, the 1.5 generation, we've come so far. And, and I think a lot of us, um, and even some younger people too, are recognizing that we are fucking awesome. Excuse <laughs> my language. Like, awesome. Yes. You know, like we are, you know, there are, we're such a, like, we're so much more nuanced than children of refugees or refugees, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like we're podcasters, we're creators, we're artists, we are politicians. You know, so I think that I will say the one thing was like coming to the coming to the United States, that potential of that American dream um is is still there, it's still strong. You know, it's just for each person it's very varied, but I'm very proud to be Cambodian, to mm. be Khmer American. Thank Never you. want that to change. And I definitely try to instill that with my children as much as possible. Amen to that. And the final question I have is if you had to talk to your 10-year-old self, what would you say to that person? Oh, it gets better. <laughs> it gets better. Um Gosh, those were such hard years. Um, I would tell my 10-year-old self to not change anything, to just keep looking forward. Um, honestly, you know, the experiences that I've experienced that you've experienced, it has made us who we are, right? Um, and gosh, if we didn't have that, I don't know where I would be if I didn't have the experiences that I, I've, you know, looking back, obviously, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, there were so many times I wanted to give up, um, you know, there was like time of depressions and, and like not knowing who you are, not knowing where you fit in, um, where you belong and just trying to survive like childhood, adolescence, young adulthood. Um, 
just keep going. <laughs> don't stop. Keep moving forward and don't give up. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Great way of soothing and encouraging that young version of you. And I, as I wrap up, I just want to say thank you so much for being on my show. I am just so honored to have known you as a friend first uh, and foremost, and just to see the incredible work that you've been doing in the last, uh, for the last several years that I've, and, and all the time that I've known you, uh, being with the museum and, um, and also being a librarian recently and, you know, doing yeah. archiving work. So I'm very proud of you. And I hope that people can start the conversation now on, talking to their loved ones or within themselves about their identity, their culture, their their history. And it's very important to lift that up because we've seen so many people who are non cambodians tell that story for us. So we are at the age where right. we have where we don't have the training wheels anymore. We can do the work and seeing what you're doing is very inspiring. And I hope that people take note of that and get to tell their own stories and start archiving that work. So, um, but anyways, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for being on my show. And I hope this conversation continues. Well, thank you, Randy, A, for like being so brave to start this podcast, especially like during the pandemic. <laughs> for like creating a platform of sharing our stories of um i mean you know i i feel like it's so funny because right before and during the pandemic like something must have shifted i think it's like you know us all being forced to isolate has really forced us to also like reimagine um how to share right mm -hmm. and how finding other ways to connect with people since we couldn't do it physically anymore yeah. and finding new you know new ways of doing that zoom um what was the other one that was like really popular for a while before zoom um skype i think skype yeah, yeah. and like I don't know what happened to them. Why did they not blow up like Zoom? And like, you know, I think in all avenues, people just have really leaned in on finding ways to connect and share and to have for you to have a platform like this, you know, for us to use is really inspiring and it's awesome. And I'm so proud of you for doing that. Like, we did not see that in our futures when we first were working together. Right. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And good luck from all that you do now and in the future.